DW Inside Europe Hello and welcome. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. On today's programme, energy policy and international security. Why the two go hand in hand. I think states are seeing once again that as geopolitical tensions increase, they have to think really carefully about how they source their energy and what kind of other governments they can rely on when it comes to providing energy for their countries. Across the border, Russian activists seek a safe haven in Bulgaria and EU summit lead up. Turkey lines up its demands. Those stories and more coming up on the programme. A new report released this week as world leaders met for the COP28 climate talks in Dubai identifies five major climate tipping points that could be triggered within a decade and warns that the ensuing ecological impacts could in turn trigger damaging tipping points in societies such as food crises, mass migration and conflict. At the same time, a Guardian investigation has revealed that Europe's most hazardous nuclear site, Sellafield in the UK, has a worsening leak from a huge silo of radioactive waste and has been hacked into by cyber groups closely linked to Russia and China. High time then to start talking about energy policy as an international security issue. Dr. Marion Mesmer is a senior research fellow in the International Security Programme at Chatham House. When we spoke earlier, I began by asking for her reactions to the Guardian's Sellafield investigation and found that she did not appear to be all that surprised to find that the nuclear site had been hacked. Yes and no, I would say. Uh, so what's surprising to us was the range and the breadth of the allegations, because um, what the Guardian suggests is going on at Sellafield in terms of their cybersecurity is pretty shocking. So we've been working on the cybersecurity of various civilian nuclear um, infrastructure, which includes power plants, but also waste management sites such as Sellafield for a number of years now. And many of the recommendations that we have been making throughout the years could have helped prevent um, some of the breaches that The Guardian describes. And it seems that many of the recommendations, many of the best practice may not have been heeded. And that's the bit that I find shocking. So maybe I could ask you to do a sort of a a risk analysis for me. I mean, from a security perspective, what are the key issues here? There there are some things where cybersecurity for nuclear sites is not any different than for any other big corporation or big industrial facility. So um, some of the attack vectors are the exact same. So you're talking about finance software, you're talking about HR software, that sort of thing. And you, of course, want to have these structures to be um, as safe and secure as possible um, due to a duty of care for the staff that work there. But then there are some additional risks that come in because of the nuclear materials that those sites manage. So one concern, of course, is that a cyber attack might have physical consequences. So, for example, that means that if an industrial control system was compromised and hackers might have access to it, then they might, for example, be able to control a reactor itself or any other system that is meant to keep nuclear waste or nuclear materials at a certain temperature or in a certain controlled environment. And if they can 
mess with that, then that could lead to an actual physical accident, which could lead to a radiation leak. That's the sort of worst case scenario. But then there are also a range of other risks. So if you're thinking about non-state actors that might want to acquire nuclear materials for their own use. Uh, nuclear materials are very tightly controlled and, and very tightly regulated, so they are actually extremely difficult to obtain. But if you imagine that someone was trying to plan theft of such materials, um, then they could use a hack in order to obtain information about when transports take place or how to get into certain systems, which would, of course, be a huge risk. And then there is the other aspect of cybercrime, and what cyber criminals could do. So they could, for example, steal sensitive information, they could steal blueprints, either to sell it on to other states or other actors that are interested in setting up their own nuclear power plants or nuclear management sites, or they could hold that information for ransom and essentially extort the UK government for a certain monetary amount in order not to leak it or not to compromise it or pass it on. So those are, broadly speaking, some of the risks. I just wanted to ask you quickly about the issue of China, China having been identified uh, in The Guardian's reporting as uh, a possible source of these hacks and China also playing a role in the UK's official energy policy in terms of its next generation power plants. And I think the key one here is Hinkley Point. Yeah, so what I would say to this one is that um, the UK government, in its response to the Guardian allegations, um, actually said that they are not aware of state actors having hacked Sellafield. So we unfortunately don't know for sure what is going on with regard to that. It would, of course, be incredibly concerning if a state actor was behind those hacks. But what is interesting to me is that China, of course, has access officially to a lot of, you know, potentially quite sensitive data about how the UK manages nuclear waste, manages manages its nuclear energy uh, pipeline through being involved in the building and managing um, an actual nuclear power reactor. So, um, yeah, I think that that's, uh, that that's indeed interesting. And it, it does raise questions about energy security and to what extent the UK can actually rely on other governments when it comes to its energy security. I think states are seeing once again that as geopolitical tensions increase, they have to think really carefully about how they source their energy and what kind of other governments they can rely on when it comes to providing energy for their countries. It's really interesting that you say that because, of course, I'm incredibly conscious that we're talking as COP28 climate talks continue in Dubai and uh, we've just had the publication of a, a new tipping point report which details clear and credible scenarios of societal collapse as key planetary boundaries are breached. I mean, are we at the stage where fossil fuels should be seen as an international security issue just as nuclear is seen as an international security issue? That's a really interesting question. I, I think from a human security perspective, climate change has been a real challenge for a really long time. And I'm glad to see that more and more governments are taking it as seriously as it ought to be taken. And the impact of fossil fuels in that regard really can't be overstated. But I think at the same time, we also have to be realistic that actually investments that we make today won't necessarily come off, unfortunately, for another decade or so. So um that will need to be the balance that various governments strike as they try to figure out where our energy comes from in the future. And I mean, 
As they do that, are there lessons that they might or we might take from nuclear risk reduction and disarmament? And I'm thinking very much here that the idea of a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty is an idea that has been raised in recent years, particularly by Ukrainian environmentalists. Is that perhaps a model that we might be able to think about applying going forward? And if so, what lessons do you think might be transferable? The idea of a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty is a really interesting one. I always caution against trying to take too many lessons from the nuclear example. I think we rush to do that because we feel safe with that example and because it is indeed an area of international collaboration that has worked quite well for a long time. But at the same time, the non-proliferation model is not without its challenges. If you were to speak to certain countries who actually would really like to invest more in um, acquiring nuclear energy or in acquiring other nuclear technologies, they would tell you all the challenges and barriers that they have actually found in their way. So I'd be really interested in hearing more about the details of what such a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty would look like, because one of the lessons I think that we can take from the nuclear non-proliferation treaty is that it split the global community of states into states that already have access to nuclear technologies and those that do not. So would a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty actually mean that we just cement the states that already use a lot of fossil fuels and keep others from also using them, which could have huge developmental implications without actually encouraging the states that rely on fossil fuels to do their work to get rid of that reliance, if that makes sense. Dr. Marian Mesmer is a senior research fellow in the International Security Programme at Chatham House. We will, of course, uh, have more environmental coverage for you next week as COP28 reaches its conclusion in Dubai. And in the meantime, please also do check out DW's environmental programmes on the Green Fence and Living Planet. Many of our countries are experiencing extreme weather patterns. I think the game is over, you know. Because it's happening more and more and it's no longer this futuristic, hypothetical thing. You realise that, you know, this isn't a long, slow evolution of change. This is rapid. Living Planet with Charlie Shield and Sam Baker. Environment stories from around the world. And you can only take so much out of the bank until there's nothing left in the bank. And what did this value here? Our monkeys were about to disappear. Before there were lots. No other animal there steps up to fill its role. They start to then disappear too. We don't even know all the species of wild bees that there are. Once the real ferns die, the last real swamps dry up, will we enter spaces that hold only digital memories of nature? Also disabled people have to be recognized in sustainability. Usually it doesn't happen. I think the Gen Z is pissed actually. Find us wherever you listen to podcasts. Russia's crackdown on civil society was escalated again last week with the outlawing of what it calls the international LGBT public movement. The ruling is expected to contribute further to the already substantial exodus of activists from the country. Many dissident Russians have sought sanctuary in neighbouring countries. Bulgaria has become one such destination, and that's despite the fact that it is notoriously difficult to be granted asylum there. Damien Vodnivicharov has more from Sofia. Alex, good to see you. How are you? 
Meet Alexander Stotsky, a Russian activist in his early 20s who fled to Bulgaria the day after Russia invaded Ukraine. He eagerly goes through his backpack as we meet. Finally, uh, I got here. Yay! <laughs> oh, that's the that's the ID. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Congratulations. How does it feel to hold it? <laughs> finally, finally, I've got it and uh, I have a travel passport right now. So it's almost like Bulgarian one, uh, as my Bulgarian friend says. This might not seem like much, but it is actually a big deal. Only asylum seekers who have been officially granted protection rights can be issued identification papers. Stotsky, an activist who has participated in pro-democracy marches in Moscow, is relieved. I really feel safe uh, because I know that they won't extradite or deport me from the country. And uh, here I can freely breathe and to live just like a uh, normal man, like a normal guy. Of course, uh, I will try to continue my um, fight here, you know, in some way. It's been a long road to get here, as Alex had to fight tooth and nail to be granted asylum. The legal battle went on for a year and a half. During this time, the state refugee agency was denying his right to asylum. The reasons given were sometimes baffling. I got uh, official documents and uh, in this statement you can just read that there is uh, 20 years of working uh, democracy institution in Russia. Everything is kind of okay. So, uh, I don't know what's really happening here in some uh, authorities and they uh, making a new statements uh, right now new new uh, refusals uh, thankfully thankfully the situation is um, a bit different a bit different because now they are not writing this nonsense uh, nonsense to other people from Russia Stotsky's political activism has continued while in Bulgaria. He's outspoken against Vladimir Putin's regime. His asylum acceptance was also a bit of a fluke, and it still is extremely difficult for other Russian activists to be granted permission to stay. He says the media attention he received had a large role to play in his success. It's almost the only way just to uh, to tell people, to tell society, to tell authorities what's really happening in their own country. That's how the things uh, really works. And um, after... Do you mean to say that it's really hard to be granted asylum without media attention? Unfortunately, yes. Unfortunately, yes. Unfortunately, that's uh, the real situation here in Bulgaria and uh, in some... Uh, countries, yeah, it's 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 always hard to get an asylum status in any country. Refusals remain the rule rather than the exception. LGBTQ activists Elena Sanina and Oksana Glazunova are on the verge of being deported back to Russia. Activist Andrei Karpov, who was beaten by police and sentenced to jail for protesting, as well as activist Ksenia Eliseva, are both awaiting court decisions after their asylum applications were denied. About 200 Russians have applied for asylum in Bulgaria, but only nine have been granted so far. When asked about the reasons for low acceptance rates, the state refugee agency's generic response is that each case is individually reviewed. Experts say that both Bulgarian bureaucracy and legislation need to be updated. Krasimir Kanev is president of the Bulgarian Helsinki Committee, an NGO that offers legal aid to asylum seekers. 
The asylum system in Bulgaria is ill-conceived. It doesn't really understand the true nature of asylum. It doesn't apply legislation well. The legislation itself has serious issues with those seeking to avoid conscription in the Russian army, for instance. The acceptance rate for asylum applications is low by design. It is low for asylum seekers from Russia, the Middle East or North Africa. Refusal rates may be high, but Russian activists are finding new ways to fight for their cause. They are trying to attract as much media coverage as possible for every single case. They have also started their own initiative named Free Russia, which is also seeking to gain political traction in Brussels. Demir Vodinicharov, DW, Sofia, Bulgaria. Just a quick reminder of our feedback address here, inside Europe at dw.com. Do drop us a line and let us know your thoughts about the show. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe. summit time again next week and this one is being seen as potentially pivotal in deciding the fate of the bloc's ties with Turkey. Turkey's once hopeful membership bid has long been in the deep freeze and discussions about Ukrainian membership as well as possible openings for other Eastern European countries are not playing very well with President Recep Tayyip Erdogan who is planning to attend the summit armed with a very long list of demands. Dorian Jones reports from Istanbul. Expansion is expected to be among the major issues EU leaders will discuss at their summit in Brussels. But a potentially significant and expensive eastward drive raises questions over long-term applicant Turkey, says Sinan Ulgen from the Istanbul-based EDAM think tank. It's going to be a historic summit in itself for the EU Uh, where decisions on possible opening towards uh, Ukraine, Moldova, Georgia as well are going to be decided. And in that context, the EU leaders will also need to answer the question about what they are willing to do with Turkey, how they are willing to engage with Turkey at a time when they're making this historic opening towards uh, potential new members uh, in the East. Since securing another election mandate in May, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan is continuing his crackdown on dissent and tightening his grip on power. But at next week's summit, Erdogan is expected to take with him a list of demands, including visa liberalisation and calls for a new trade deal. Bergtay Mandaray, a senior analyst with the International Crisis Group, says that given Erdogan is set to remain in power for the foreseeable future, the EU is looking for compromise rather than confrontation. It seems like there is, especially after elections in Turkey, the EU is also looking for new ways of having a more constructive and less 
acrimonious relationship with Turkey. So these areas of mutual interest, especially the modernization of the customs union, which is in the interest of both the EU and Turkey. Well, of course, I mean, the human rights situation in Turkey and democratic um, backsliding in Turkey, I mean, that always comes up in discussions uh, within the EU. We don't really see too many improvements on that front. But there are major obstacles to Erdogan's demands. Far-right parties in Europe have continued to notch up electoral gains, most recently in the Netherlands, and they're deeply opposed to visa liberalisation with Turkey, while a new customs trade deal with the EU has a human rights requirement. But analyst Sinan Ulgen warns that given Turkey's strategic location, bordering the Middle East and sharing the Black Sea with Ukraine and Russia, the EU can ill afford to alienate Ankara. The repercussions will be more in terms of the opportunity cost of uh, not having a closer Turkey-EU relationship. For instance, might entail a, a convergence uh, on a foreign policy uh, approach. You know, it might have turned into a closer diplomatic partnership to address some of the regional crisis. It might also mean uh, working together for the reconstruction of Ukraine. But all of these opportunities will be lost if this estrangement between Turkey and the EU continues. Erdogan will likely remind EU leaders of Turkey's role as gatekeeper to migrants seeking to enter Europe. At the same time, he has yet to agree to allow Sweden to join NATO. For Brussels, the seemingly endless conundrum about what to do with Turkey will be the elephant in the room at the EU summit, says Yanis Grigordias at the Hellenic Foundation for European and Foreign Policy. There is no realistic perspective of EU membership in light of the democratic backsliding and all the developments that have been taking place in the country in the last few years. And in that respect, even if all sides agree that the relationship has to be reframed and reformed, then the question of what we mean by privileged partnership or whether the European Union is willing to compromise seriously on human rights, democracy and rule of law and try to see very pragmatic relationship with Turkey on a number of issues of common interest and concern, right? This is a very interesting and very difficult discussion that I'm not sure uh, most European countries are willing to address at the moment. As with previous EU summits, there's an expectation that contentious issues with Turkey will be postponed in the hope that future commitments to Ankara will be enough to avoid a confrontation with Erdogan and keep Turkey on side. Or in other words, kick the can down the road. Doreen Jones, DW, Istanbul. Now hold on tight, we're about to get quizzical. Congratulations to everyone last week who knew that the Berlin Wall was 155 kilometres long. There was Christmas Eve, babe, and the drunk time. This week, we're honouring the memory of the late Irish folk punk star Shane McGowan with the following question. What is the origin of the band name, The Pogues? Is it an anglicisation of an Irish expression meaning kiss my bottom, an abbreviated form of Celtic punk rogues, 
or a tribute to McGowan's beloved pet dog, who can be heard barking on the band's first album. Head over to Spotify to take part in the poll. Inside Europe is also available on all the usual platforms, including YouTube via DW's new podcast channel. You're listening to Inside Europe. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. This is Inside Europe and I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. Coming up this half hour, set in stone, an Aegean archaeologist puts the moral case for the return of the Parthenon marbles. And so Greeks have actually come to recognize this as the equivalent of a national symbol. Arguably, it's a more famous national symbol than even the Greek flag. Crise d'identité, second-generation migrants and the question of French identity. Road rave, autobahn extension threatens Berlin's club life. And buzz off, por favor, Asian hornets and the threat to Spanish bees. That's all coming up right here. Broadcasting from Germany. This is Inside Europe. If I told you that you would cut the Mona Lisa in half... And you would have half of it at the Louvre and half of it at the British Museum. Do you think your viewers would appreciate the, the, the beauty of the painting? That's the Greek Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis speaking in a now infamous interview given to the BBC last week. An interview which led to the cancellation of Mitsotakis's invitation to meet with his British counterpart, Rishi Sunak. Mitsotakis was, of course, talking about the Elgin or Parthenon marbles, a collection of ancient sculptures taken from the Parthenon and other structures from the Acropolis in Athens at the beginning of the 19th century by the 7th Earl of Elgin, then Britain's ambassador to the Ottoman Empire, which was in control of Greece at the time. Now, Sunak claims that Mitsotakis reneged on an agreement not to mention the Greek desire for the marble's repatriation. But just why the British Prime Minister should have chosen to make a diplomatic incident out of the issue has, quite frankly, baffled not only the British commentariat, but also many members of Sunak's own party. In Greece, however, the marbles issue is of crucial symbolic and political importance. As I found out when I spoke to Dr. Evangelos Kyriakidis, specialist in Aegean archaeology and founding director of the Heritage Management Organization. Not only they are very, very important because they signify the rebirth of the Athenian democracy after Athens was raised to the ground by the Persians in 480 BC. So it's kind of the glorification of what Athens can do. 
It's the epitome of the classical style. It's a, a show-off of what democracy can do. And so Greeks have actually come to recognize this as the equivalent of a national symbol. Arguably, it's a more famous national symbol than even the Greek flag. And so this is a national symbol. And that's what distinguishes this temple from other temples. That's, I think, really interesting and really significant because when the Greek Prime Minister uh, Kriakos Mitsotakis described the splitting off of these statues um, from the, the Parthenon as being like cutting the Mona Lisa in half, I think that there was a sort of an international recognition of the, the violence of that mm-hmm. image because we all understand the cultural significance of the Mona Lisa. But yes. the marbles are perhaps something that is not actually understood in those terms anywhere other than in Greece? I wouldn't say so. I mean, if you had seen drawings of how the Parthenon looked before Elgin, and you could actually really see that this was, you know, a a very spectacular monument, very heavy in meaning, very strong representation of democracy, very strong representation of classical ideas, philosophy, and so on and so forth, craftsmanship. And so in all these ways, very similar to the Mona Lisa, we're just distanced in time from when that all happened. But to add on top of what the Mona Lisa example gives us, which is this violence, is violent tearing apart of a piece of art that actually nowadays happens to be a national symbol. So there's a clear diplomatic argument there for the the need for return. Is there a moral one as well? I think all of these are moral arguments. I mean, the moral arguments are are extraordinary. Greece is a country that has been occupied by an empire at the time, the Ottoman Empire. So decolonizing museums, arguments, and so on and so forth are very comparable. You know, there is a lot of... uh, um, British humor uh, about um, you know how <laughs> how we like these things and we'll put them in our museum for safekeeping, uh, but as it transpired, it's not safe. Right now, this this is crucial because one of the key arguments that Britain and the British Museum have always made is the marbles should stay here because we are a safe facility. This is where they will be best cared for, best protected. And you understand that. There was the earlier counter-argument. Actually, they were not very well protected because during conservation, a lot of data has been lost, a lot of color has been scraped off. The surface of the sculpture has been treated with acid and metal brushes. This was the first uh, retort to this argument. The second retort now, as it transpires, is that it's not even a safe place from thieves and markets as we have more than 1,500 antiquities missing from the museum collections that have gone probably to the market. Yeah, I mean, some of them sold on eBay, presumably by a curator of the British Museum itself. I mean, I'm not really in a position to know how things happened. The museum is in a much better position than me. And by the way, I personally have cherished the collections of the British Museum and I have uh, worked as a volunteer in the British Museum. But it's extremely offensive to pick someone's heritage and put in a museum that's called British. 
especially when the British Museum does not have a lot of its rooms dedicated to British heritage, which is, by the way, very rich. And so it's an offense to everybody, including my British colleagues. Um, so <laughs> so I, I, I think the moral argument for returning a national symbol is extraordinarily strong, reunifying a national symbol that everybody knows is in Athens. And I mean, as you say, that the British Museum, it, it, is, it is an imperial collection. Um, but as such, it does bring together artefacts and artworks from all over the world. Um, and the, there is a, a sort of an argument, um, sort of often referred to as the avalanche effect. You know, we give one thing back, then we have to give everything back. And then everybody loses because this wonderful collection will not be accessible in one place and all the research and everything that goes with it will, will, will be lost. How would you sort of respond to that argument? First comment is that the avalanche effect is already happening. There is multiple returns of antiquities or heritage items to several African countries. And so the idea that, oh no, when one starts asking for things, then everybody will start asking for things is already happening. There is a very big program funded by the British government on decolonizing the museums. Third uh, argument is actually uh, Greece last year had more than 30 million visitors. So I do not really understand how Greece is worse placed to house its own national symbol in a purpose-built museum um, than, um, than the British Museum. Greece is consistently only asking for its national symbol back. So I cannot really understand how the British Museum is thinking that this is going to cause an avalanche. If anything, it might actually delay the avalanche. The avalanche will happen for the museum as it is already happening all around it. Dr. Evangelos Kyriakidis is the founding director of the Heritage Management Organization, which aims to promote good practice in the management of heritage around the world. Now, national identity looms large in our next story, too. In France, the concept has been key to the success of far-right candidate Marine Le Pen, who, polls indicate, would be voted in as president were French elections to be held today. But what does French identity actually mean in a country with a long history of colonialism and immigration? And how much sense do slogans about defending it even make? Lisa Louis reports from the French capital. A rehearsal at the Theatre of Sartreville, a northwestern suburb of Paris, on a recent Tuesday afternoon. The question of French identity is at the heart of this play. Half a dozen actors or actresses sit or stand on the planks of a cross-section of a wooden ship. They are creating the under-France of the Fatimas and the Mohammeds, one actress shouts. Under-France, souffrance, is a pun on the word souffrance, which means suffering. The play, called Caldun, which means immortal, is based on a dramatic episode in French colonial history. After cracking down on uprisings in Paris and French-ruled Algeria in the late 19th century, France extradited insurgents to New Caledonia, a French territory in the South Pacific. 
The piece was written by theatre director Abdelwahab Sefsaf, whose parents moved from French Algeria to the southern city of Saint-Étienne just after the Second World War. The 53-year-old, who has both French and Algerian nationality, told me that remembering largely forgotten parts of the country's history, like the one enacted in his play, was crucial to getting to the bottom of French identity, his own, and the country's more generally. Telling these stories helps repair our collective memory. I think we suffer from the traumas of the parts of our history which we have forgotten. I am 100% French, but I also need to own my personal history. As the son of immigrants, I am proud of this legacy and the culture I have inherited. But the country's far-right party, Rassemblement National, does not take these facets of French identity into account. Its 2022 presidential election manifesto featured a proposal that would create the possibility to ban by nationals, like theatre director Sefsaf, from jobs in the civil service. Last year, the Rassemblement National's presidential candidate, Marine Le Pen, reached the decisive runoff vote for the second time in a row. She lost against the now re-elected centrist president, Emmanuel Macron, but improved her score from just under 34% in 2017 to more than 41% five years later. The party is back on the campaign trail for next year's European elections, again pledging to defend what they see as French identity. That's Jordan Bardella, the party's youthful president, telling a campaign meeting in the southern town of Beaucaire that he will defend the original France, its identity and its borders. The party did not reply to our request for an interview, but is their vision of identity too simplistic? At this recent conference at the Anthropology Museum Musée de l'Homme in western Paris, researchers were discussing how France's history has been marked by immigration and colonization. One of those on the podium was historian Naïma Hubert Yaï. She told me how many in France, especially the far right, adhere to an outdated definition of French identity. They pretend being French only includes white people and Jews or Christians. This narrative stems from the 19th century and has not been updated since. It does not take into account other aspects such as our history of slavery, colonization or migration, nor does it include people of color such as many French living in overseas territories. This definition of being French does not correspond to reality. Back at the rehearsal in the theater of Sartreville, one performer is portraying yet another angle of French identity. Simon Venetem is a Kanak, the name given to the indigenous people of New Caledonia, which is still a French overseas territory. There, the rapper and dancer explains, being French can mean many things. Je refuse pas l'identité française. I am French. That's just the way it is. But in our part of the country, we rather wonder about our identity as New Caledonians. What does it actually mean? Many communities form a part of our people. Indonesians, Vietnamese, they are well integrated into our society and we see them as brothers. Theatre director Abdelwahab Sefsaf 
thus thinks the country needs a new, more inclusive narrative of identity, and that cultural initiatives like this one can play an important role in creating it. I don't know what French culture actually means. I realize that this term evolves and changes every day. France is our country. We need to construct it together and participate in defining its identity without denying our own. A shared identity is so much richer, as it includes parts of each one of us. Sef Saf is already working on his next play, in the hope that he might be able to bridge some of the rifts that the far right is trying to deepen. Lisa Louis, DW, Paris. Now, it's a funny thing, but if you were to ask me what German culture is, I'd probably struggle to find a concise answer. If you asked me about Berlin culture, though, one word would spring to mind immediately. Clubs. Berlin's club scene is iconic, not just in Europe, but around the world. But now venues like the quirky, maze-like Salon zur Wilden Renate or the left-wing techno location About Blank are under threat by another German icon, the Autobahn. German authorities are planning a four-kilometre motorway extension through the city centre, which proponents say is necessary to keep up with the city's growing population and traffic. But where does that leave the clubs? Ben Ressel reports. I'm in Berlin Friedrichshain at the minute, and although this sounds like a techno rave, it's actually a protest against a planned motorway extension, which would lead from Neukölln, southeastern Berlin, up to and into northeastern Berlin, uh, into Friedrichshain. Mark Grafendam is heaving with young people. There are a few families with young kids as well, and it's a big event which will last long into the night. I think in times of climate change, we don't need another fast way to go through the city. I think we need more bikes and more bikeways, money for schools and not for an autobahn. That's 44-year-old Isa. She also says that displacing clubs from this area will hurt the city. We really need a club culture in Berlin because this is what Berlin is about and that is why a lot of people come here. And I have the feeling that at the moment they are destroying everything what makes Berlin Berlin. So in the end we will have like another generic city. So we have to stop that too. A few days later, I catch up with Berlin-based author and lecturer Paul Hanford. His 2022 book, Global Journeys into an Electronic Music and Club Culture Capital, takes a deep dive into Berlin's club culture. I wanted to get his perspective on the neighbourhood. I am familiar with the neighbourhood, yes. It's, uh, it's, it's had quite a few nights of stomping around there um, through the late hours of Friday and a Saturday and a Sunday. Hanford says Berlin's very cultural identity could be at stake. If we give away things like our cultural tropes and cultural identity, then we are giving away what actually makes Berlin a unique place to live in. And if we do this, then we make ourselves indistinguishable from any other city. That's echoed by Lutz Leistenring of Club Commission Berlin, which represents hundreds of venues and event organizers across the city. Berlin nightlife, he says, is special. 
important. I think the club scene of Berlin represents a lot what the DNA of the city is. It is um, a lot of non-conformist people coming together with a lot of creativity. This idea of, you know, rawness and unfinishedness, I think, is, is something that the city represents and, and the clubs are, are pretty much symbolizing that as well. Experts project the four- to six-lane motorway could cost some 800 million euros in taxpayer money. So far, the project is still in the planning stage. But if everything goes according to schedule, construction should be completed by 2035. Germany's Motorway Planning and Construction Agency says the number of cars in Berlin has grown to over 1.2 million in the past 10 years and says the extension reflects the need for more motorways. Other supporters of the project say it will reduce traffic, noise and pollution in Berlin's residential neighborhoods. And one survey last year found that a majority of Berliners support the extension. But building the motorway and harming the club scene could have far-reaching economic consequences. Berlin has become synonymous with techno music and nightclubs, which pull in scores of tourists each year. In 2018, those clubs generated a turnover of 170 million euros. Lutz Leistenring again. So about a third of the tourists come because of the nightlife to Berlin and they spend when they come to the city on taxi, on hotels and on, and on shopping, etc. 1.5 billion euros per year. He says 80 to 100 people are employed in some of these clubs and they could all be out of a job if the clubs disappear. About Blank Techno Club housed in a drab, grey, concrete building covered in graffiti, would be one of the venues that would have to shut. It employs between 150 and 200 people, depending on the season. But the club is not only about partying, says club spokeswoman Elisabeth Steffen. There's like a lot of parties with a focus on electronic music taking place, but also like outdoor cinema in the summer. We have political discussions, cultural events, and uh, yeah, a lot more. So a diverse cultural program. She thinks the motorway extension will not benefit the city. So we somehow established a very uh, yeah, unique uh, cultural uh, sphere in this area. And also the plans that were made for this motor highway were, were made like really long ago. One could argue that already back then they were like dinosaurs, but especially right now, they're not uh, appropriate plans for a city of the present and the future. So we think that these plans should be discarded and we should move to a like socially and ecologically just uh, city planning. But many infrastructure projects in Germany go over schedule by months, if not years. So this conflict probably won't be resolved anytime soon. Ben Restler, DW, Berlin. Berlin then can party on for a little longer yet. As can we, here on Inside Europe.
Finally, to the sting in the tail of this week's show, a look at the winged invader threatening Europe's bee populations. I am, of course, talking about the Asian hornet, also known as the Vesper velutina. As their name suggests, these insects are usually native to East and South Asian countries like Japan, China and India. As a result of climate change, however, the Asian hornet is now in Europe, having entered via France in 2012. Asian hornets are much larger than European bees and predominantly feed off them. This is now beginning to have an impact not only on bee populations but also on the production of honey. One region which has been most affected is the province of Galicia in the north of Spain. Inside Europe, Sashish Sharma went to find out more. They take the bee, they carry them to a place like a tree or something like that, and they cut the head, they cut her legs. Iago Roca, an experienced beekeeper here in Santiago, has never seen anything like this. Only take the thorax, the central part of the body, and give them to, to the, the little velutinas, to the larvas. The Asian hornet, or the Vespa velutina, is devouring bees in this region of Spain. You can see that? That is velutina. Wow. And all the day they stay here fighting with, <laughs> between us and the bees don't go out. Of the 120 hives that Iago has, only 90 contain bees that are producing honey. In the rest, the bees either starved or were killed venturing out to find food. You see the traps yeah. uh, above the, the hives. OK, so this is the bit that I haven't been looking forward to. So now we're putting on a bee suit. I feel like I'm you know, like about to go on in, in space. It's important that, yeah, yeah, at the first time... From showing me an area where the hornets have killed half of the bees he has, Iago takes me to another site, up in the mountains. Here, the Velutinas have not yet arrived in great numbers, and his bees are thriving, producing a monoflower honey, which comes from the chestnut tree. I can hear them all around me. We only want to go see one of them to see you. Oh, my God. What they have there. Oh, wow. You can see that all that honey... And they have uh, baby bees. Yeah. You look at that. They oh, are growing. It's a baby bees. It is a baby bee. It's, it's uh, yeah. coming to the world. Uh-huh. You, you have seen that, no? Oh. That is a baby bee uh-huh. in the first uh, stay of her life. It's going out the, the panel. What did you think about that? I think that's incredible. <laughs> okay, it's very. We have not a fire, and it's bad for him. I will close because me. Look at that. Oh yeah. It's You've better got stop. Hundreds of bees all over your. If it, it's hand. better stop, yeah. <laughs> and they're all over our faces as well. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah. With the sweet, no problem. Yeah. So many bees on this one. Yeah. They're making all the honey. They're beginning that panel, isn't it? You can see yeah, from the colour. Yeah, you color, can see. It's very... The wax. Uh, they are making the wax. Yeah. So it's a long way from being finished. Iago sells one kilogram of his honey for around 11 euros, but he's facing reduced levels of production annually as more and more bees are killed by the hornets. Historically, independent beekeepers in Galicia have formed cooperatives where they sell their products. Yes, sí, la factoría. Yeah. 
Erika Miel is the largest cooperative in the Santiago region. With over 240 members, they produce over 100,000 kilograms of honey a year. Jose Rodriguez, who runs one of the warehouses, says there is a growing concern that the onslaught on honeybees will have dire consequences for the future of this industry. La reina eh, deja de poner huevos, y entonces la cría... The queens are not laying many eggs, so young bees, which a hive needs to get through the winter, are not being born. The hive is considerably weakened with mainly old bees. In many cases, they're not able to see through the winter period. It means apiarists need to build another nucleus of bees from the wild, but this takes time, and so you miss the first flowering season and have no honey to sell. For the Vespa Velotina, there's no financial help. With the exception of some aid for traps, I'm not aware of any other help. The Vespa Velotina has made its way across northern Spain and into Catalonia. Rosé Roches is an investigator at CREAF, a public body dedicated to research in biodiversity. She's worried about the long-term impact on local fauna. Together with honeybees and with uh, all the pollinators that are affected, can have uh, its consequent effects on uh, on the pollination they made, so on the production of seeds and on the production of fruits of the local flora. Unfortunately, we are aware that uh, fighting this type of invasions, it's impossible to eliminate them. So we have to get used to them, to lower the impacts that they have and try to make the, the ecosystems resilient to this type of invasions so the the impact is not as high as it has been until now. So far, beekeepers have had little financial support, both in aid for loss of production or investment in helping combat the hornets. But local and national governments may soon have to realise that the dedication of independent beekeepers is not going to be enough to stem the tide and that much more will need to be done to protect bees as well as maintain the diversity of the local environment. Ashish Sharma, DW, Santiago. There's more environmental coverage over on DW's Living Planet and on the Green Fence podcasts. You'll find them both on DW's podcast channel, on YouTube, as well as all the other usual platforms. For us, though, that's it for today. This programme was produced by Helen Sini, with help from me, Kate Laycock, and sound engineer, Siad Abu Sleiman. The feedback address is insideeurope at dw.com. Inside Europe comes to you from DW in Germany.